Martin. I heard them talk about the same feelings I was afraid to share. Recovery is what happens at NA meetings. It didn't matter what drug or how much I used. In Narcotics Anonymous, I learned that it is possible to stop using drugs. I don't have to do it alone. For your 24-hour helpline numbers, in the Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti area, 734-913-9839. Or for the Detroit area 24-hour helpline, 248-543-7200. Or you can check out our website, www.michigan-na.org. afternoon. Welcome to the Living Writers Show. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is poet Robert Hershon, author of 12 books of poems, beginning in 1967 with Swans Loving Bears, Burning the Melting Deer, and the most recent book, Calls from the Outside World, published in 2005. He is the recipient of two National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships, three New York State Council on the Arts Fellowship, is the executive director of the Prince Center and has been co-editor of Hanging Loose Press, which publishes books and Hanging Loose uh, Literary Journal for about the last 40 years. I believe it's been 40 years. years, Yeah. Yeah. All the way from Brooklyn, New York, please welcome Robert Hershon. It's great to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I, I, I get to Ann Arbor about once every eight or nine years, and I always have a terrific time. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, you've, you've caught us in um, spring, which is still winter. Yes, I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> well, as it is our usual, I'd love it if you would start the show with a bit of your work from the new book, Calls from the Outside World. Okay. This is called From the Balcony of the Hotel della Signoria. Signoria. Excuse me. This is not the real me. The real me has been removed to a museum, and this plaster me has been put here to stand in all weather so tourists can imagine the warmth of my real thigh. It's not that I really wish to be a seller of gloves in a sliver of a shop on the Via Por Santa Maria. I'd just like to slip into his life for a day or two and out of this baggy, wrinkled life I brought with me. Does he have trouble with the key every morning or just on rainy Mondays? Now who has called him before he's even got the lights on? His wife, his mother, the owner? He keeps nodding into the telephone. The Ponte Vecchio is silent. Gold merchants do not rise early. But here's sudden color and movement. A Japanese tour group comes trotting along at good pace. They pause, they look, and they're off again. I hope his crossword puzzle book is thick and easy for this long gray finger of a day. And you, 
still asleep on a pile of your pillows and mine, don't even know that I went on a journey and now I've returned. I've drunk all my coffee and now I'm starting on yours. Thank you very much. That's the poem. Um, tell me the title again. From, uh, from the Balcony of the Hotel della Signoria. Signoria, yeah. from the newest book, um, Calls from the Outside World. Yeah. In a recent review in on Arbor Web, um, Keith Taylor said, When the normal is seen just slightly askew, it can be wildly absurd, puzzling, amusing, or occasionally luminous. Robert Hirshan is a poet who sees the world turned ever so slightly toward the absurd and the fabulous. And in a conversation earlier today, I heard you say that your press is known for publishing the, the if, if it's sort of what we do, it's um, language that is... Um, more plain-spoken language that is often humorous and that has a slightly political bit, which characterize, which I think is a good way to describe your own poems. I wonder if you talk a little bit about how you do see your work and um, this, your twelfth book, has there? Do you see it differently? Um, when I look back at my first books, it's like reading work by by somebody you used to know. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's uh, strange. I I was. Uh, Hosting a reading once in which, the <coughs> excuse me, they had been talking all day. The reading, uh, the reader didn't show up. He was late, very late. And the the somebody at the school said, "Quick, do you have any of your books around?" And I sent a kid to the library, and they brought back a copy of my first book, and I, I, I was reading from it. And as I was reading it, I was editing wildly. I said, "I'm not going to read that line. I'm going to change this line." You know, you were about three lines ahead of your, of your voice. And uh, so, yeah, but you only see those things in retrospect, I think. And, and, and also, you know, what you start out doing isn't necessarily what you end up with. And I mean, it's, I guess there are poets who can just say, okay, I'm going to stop doing it like this. I'm going to do it like that and make it some enormous sea change. Um, I realized, like, uh, it's not always easy being being tagged as a, as a funny poet because it means nobody takes you seriously. You know, I can think of wonderful poets, Kenneth Koch, Paul Violi, who have never gotten the critical attention they 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 should have had because they are not s solemn as AS. You know, but is it? I mean, do you think that there's? Why is it that we think humor is not? Um, serious enough or or well, I think it's just built into the society you know I mean so the, you know uh, poetry that's all about uh, the soul and the weather and so forth that's poetry that's what people have been taught that's poetry you know it's sort of solemn and boring and good for you like uh, spinach and uh, you know and I I uh, I had this realization once I I, I wrote a poem called The Fifth of July. It's in an earlier book. Uh, and it was about uh, breaking up with this girlfriend and so forth. And I wrote the poem with tears streaming down my chubby cheeks. I mean, I, was, I could barely see the paper. It was such a painful poem to me. And I didn't read it for a while. And finally, I was in front of some big audience at a benefit, and I decided to read it. And I got to one line, and the audience exploded in laughter. And my first thought, you know, I mean, instantaneous was like, oh, you cruel bastards, you know, wow, terrible, you know. The, the. Then, I thought, the then, I, then I thought, wait a minute, oh, that's a funny line, you know. I thought, because when I write it, that's the way it comes out. 
You know, whether you're trying to be funny or not be funny, that's that's what my voice does. So, you know. Well, and the the material that you deal with, the subject matter, I mean, like heartbreak or mm. um, any number of political themes that run throughout your work are quite serious matters, um, and you don't make light of them at all. Um, so it's it's a it's an it's an interesting mix this um, humor and serious subject and um, how do you think that they work together? Sometimes, ideally, this sounds sort of sadistic, but you know, you you write a poem and you think, I'm going to have them laughing, and then in the middle of a laugh, they're going to freeze and go, oh. <laughs> you know, you know. But it's it's not so much a conscious process, you know. When critics write about 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 how 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 writers work, they they so often don't know how writers work, you know. And they they talk about things that poets as as though they had all been planned, you know. I'll make the scheme and then I'll follow the scheme, and that you know it's not the way it happens, you know. So much of it happens on on, on in the unconscious level, and so much of it is is the result of years of writing and and, and things, you know. Well, your first poem, I believe, came out in the Antioch Review in 1961. Is that have I got the dates I, right? It sounds about right, about it, right, and it was it was the Antioch Review. Yeah, it's a so you've uh, been poem, writing poem I never want to see again. I think uh, <laughs> well, we won't yeah. go dig it up yeah. and make you make you. Yeah. We won't parade that one before you today, but um, that's over forty years, forty five years of of writing poems for uh, the public. Yeah. How is your process? Do you sit down every morning? Do you no, nothing, um, nothing like that? I've never had that luxury. Um, I uh, the print center, which which prints books and other materials for uh, schools and other nonprofit organizations, as well as other small publishers, uh, is is a full time job. I mean that uh, I'm there five days a week. The press takes as much time as I can possibly give it, and the writing gets done in the cracks, and I've never had a systematic schedule where I sit down and just write and so forth. I don't know what would have been different if I had. You know, I suspect I would have sat there for long periods staring out the window. (laughs) Uh, Most of the times in my life when I've had some perfect setup, two weeks in the vineyard, nothing to do, Bring bring eighteen pads and thirteen different kinds of pens and so forth. Nothing, you know. No words no. come out and at then, all. Then I come back and I go to work and then suddenly on the subway, you know, where you can't move your arm, uh, suddenly. There's well, the poem. Something to write, yeah. So, do you then write on little scraps of paper that you tuck here and there? Or do you have a specific I, place? I usually still start a poem. On yeah, something is scribbled, scribbled in in handwriting. To me, the, the, you know, they sometimes the 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 germ of the poem is is so is so delicate and so ephemeral that if you don't get it down right away, if you distract yourself for a minute, if you say, "Oh, I'll write that down in a minute," you know, and then it's gone, and you think, "What the hell was that? What was it?" And you rarely get it back, you know. So I often want to just get the germ of the idea down down in paper, and and sometimes it's just in a fast shorthand, so I won't forget, and and very far usually from what the finished poem ends up being. Sometimes those the first jottings totally disappear, sort of like uh, you know the Frank O'Hara poem about. Uh, uh, 
watching his friend paint and the uh, you know the impetus of the of, of of the painting disappears but it remains the title you know um so uh and then um in the years since I learned to use a computer, I find I moved to the computer pretty quickly. I used to, I used to do that with a typewriter, too. I, I used to put a piece of paper in the typewriter, type the poem as far as it would go, and when I couldn't go any further, I'd take the paper out, and I'd put it in another sheet of paper and start all over again. Even if I ended up typing the, the, the first version identically, and sooner or later it would go zig instead of zag, or something more would come, or, you know... And and it would just be uh, finally a you know an, an inch of paper mm-hmm. uh, as as it finally got to its final version. Do you find that you'll spend years writing a particular poem, or just multiple versions in a in a relatively short amount of time? There's no single model. Uh, you know, you uh, sometimes you get lucky and you really do get a poem all in one take, but it's rare. <laughs> yeah, and uh, there are poets who boast of never revising, and I always look and say, "Boy, it might have been a good poem if he just revised it." Uh, but more often than not, with me, I, I go through that process I just described, and sometimes I've got the finished poem right there over a period of a few days. I have other things where I've I've gone, and that's as far as I can go, and somehow you lose that original spark, and you say. This is just, this is not working. This isn't right. It's just flat and it's boring and it's not what I wanted to say and I don't know where I want it to go. And you put it away and you might come across it uh, weeks later, months later, even years later and say, wait a minute. I know, uh, I know what I wanted to do here. I can recapture that and you finish the poem. And it feels very, very, very good and very thrifty. You know, you salvage this poem from oblivion. The, so. the, the stack of the, yeah. the ones that didn't work. Yeah. D- has it been a process of figuring out, you, you said at the very beginning of the interview that you look at your early books and they're sort of like, it's written by a person you used to know. It's like yeah. an old friend. Do you find that the way you've come to figure out whether or not a poem is finished has changed or just the subject or the the slant or the the, the approach has changed the whole the, the whole voice seems very different to me. The, the early poems are uh, uh, much more surreal and a lot of them I look at all these years later and I have no idea what's going on in them. You know, I mean, maybe maybe the images still still have some some life in them, but I have no idea what the poem was about or why I wrote it or or any 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 memory of that. And I have found I was talking with with Donna Brooke, my wife, uh, the other day about how we know any number of poets who started out writing much more um, naughty verse verse that was like. We, I have a friend named Tony Toll, who I also published. Tony's a terrific poet, and his early work was sort of famously difficult. And his later work is much, much more straightforward and simple. And I know that pattern in the work of any number of people, you know, and I don't know any poets who've gone the other way. They've gotten you know, more difficult and right, have gotten, yeah, they've gone along. Yeah, you know, I'm not quite sure what that means, but I think it's I think it's, it's true. Pattern. Maybe as you get older, you say like you know, yeah, I really do want people to know what I'm talking about. I I really I really don't want to put roadblocks in there. I really want them to be able to understand the poem. You know. So. 
Well, that's a mm. good place to take a brief pause. Uh, we'll right. let that settle in, mm. and we'll take a break. We'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is poet Robert Hershon. We'll be right back. Chipmunk Pals inviting you to get aboard the Christmas bandwagon, and here we go! We are back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. Those were the chipmunks in the background there for our little break, and... um, I'll I'll tell you why. Uh, well, actually, I'll let my guest Robert Hershon tell you why. What? Where did the the the, the chipmunks? <laughs> okay. Well, you're going to have to listen to the whole poem to get two lines of chipmunks. All right. <laughs> and this poem is called Ross Bagdasarian. And you think, who the hell is that? And now you'll find out. In Rosemary Clooney's obituary, there is a reference to her big hit, Kamana My House, which is put forth as an example of the terrible shit she had to sing before she broke through to quality stuff, but I don't remember it as such a bad song. When I was a kid, I was impressed that the lyrics were written by William Soroyan and his cousin, Ross Bagdasarian. But I didn't know then that I would remember the name Ross Bagdasarian for 40 years or so, even though I never heard it again until I saw it in Rosemary Clooney's obituary, and also learned that he changed his name to David Seville and founded the Chipmunks, so maybe even he forgot the name Ross Bagdasarian. And when I was a teenager, I never expected to have any connection with William Soroyan. But now Aram Soroyan occasionally emails political jokes to me. And I remember reading once that he was up for the part that Dustin Hoffman got in The Graduate, which was the first movie I ever saw in an airplane flying from Seattle to New York. The movie opens on a tight close-up of Benjamin. You can't tell he's on an airplane, so when you hear the captain's voice saying that they're approaching Los Angeles, it's very confusing because you don't know if it's the movie captain, you think it's the real captain, and you wonder why the hell the plane has been diverted and why they didn't think to mention mention it until now, and who do I know in Los Angeles, and how long will I be there? A whole new life May beckon a life of glamour and music, hanging out with Rosie and Ross and various singing rodents. Are chipmunks rodents? Look that up, somebody. It would beat two days in Seattle driving around in the drizzle with a superstitious cold canvasser testing a sales talk, I wrote. Stop the car, he'd shout. Yellow house. I can always make a sale in a yellow house. And Cooper, he could sell anyone named Cooper. How about Hooper, I asked. Yeah, yeah, Hooper's pretty good, too, but Cooper is a lock. It was a two-syllable world. Come on to my house, my house. I'm going to give you Easter egg. Thank you very much. So um, how, where did that one come from? How did you... That, that's pretty much reportage. Yeah. Um, I was... Uh, I, I had a job at one point where I was writing all kinds of hack stuff, including sales talks. And I would uh, go out into the field, as they say in the sales field, and uh, 
and I'd sit in a corner of some living room while in this, it was encyclopedias, and the salesman would 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 test out a, a sales talk that I had given. And a, uh, I asked the audience last night if they knew what a cold canvasser was, and nobody knew. Uh, but a cold canvasser is, is a salesman who just knocks on doors. You he'll, know, he doesn't have any leads. Nobody's asked him to come. He just bangs on doors until somebody lets him in. And they, they're they a very superstitious lot, I have discovered. You know, like Yellow House. Oh, boy, I can always always lucky for me. And uh, and I was, you know, the poem was, was touched off uh, by seeing the name Ross Bagdasarian and it, when Rosemary Clooney died okay. a couple of years ago. And all these thoughts. And then, you know, sort of one thing led to another. It's one of those poems that, that keeps just stringing itself out and stringing itself out. And you have a feeling it could go forever, you know. And uh, I, it, it came out in American Poetry Review and it was on the back page, which is pretty prominent. And yeah. I suddenly realized I had I'd never shown a copy to Aram Soroyan. And... Uh, and uh, I thought, oh, that's really rude. It's all about his family, you know. And uh, uh, and but luckily, uh, Aram Aram liked the poem very much. And he also told me that Ross Bagdasarian had died very young, which is one of the reasons I never heard of him again. <laughs> well, and I when I was doing a little search to find the Chipmunks, I was I was trying to find some Chipmunks music that was not <laughs> Christmas music, and mm-hmm. and I couldn't. I did a search for David Seville, right. also from the poem, and 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 uh, Bagdasarian, and. Um, couldn't come up with much. Most of the mm-hmm. chipmunks, it's uh, Christmas songs. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah. It's interesting. Now, you are from Brooklyn. You were born yep. in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I that, was. And you live in Brooklyn now. I live in Brooklyn now, which I never expected to do, to do of my own free will as an adult. I, I lived in the village. I lived in San Francisco for about five years. What and, brought you back to New York? Um... And kept you there. Uh, well, I left. I left San, San, I, 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 San Francisco is very important to me. I, I went out there in 1957, when all hell was breaking loose and the whole North Beach thing and the so-called Beat thing, and and it was a very exciting time to be there. Although it didn't always seem so at the time, and I met a lot of interesting people and did a lot of interesting things and drank too much and did all the things you're supposed to do when you're 21. And uh, every time I think that I'm I'm finished with San Francisco, um, it pops up again. So uh, one of the newest poems in this book is that poem about the the old times theater and, that we were talking about, and and I just wrote that very recently. And that that you know that's a theater I went to in uh, 1960, 1961, a long time. And I think where the hell did that come from? But there it is, you know. Back again. Yeah, Donna uh, pointed out to me. I, I I went to NYU and I lived at home while I was in college. And she said, "Well, those were like your college years when you went you out know? to California." Yeah, when you went out, you know. So the memory she has of being a student at U of M, in fact, uh, you know, are so, sort of parallel to my memories of going out to San Francisco. Your wife, the poet Donna Brooke, is from Michigan. She's from Detroit. Is that yeah? Is that right? Yeah, she yeah. grew up in Detroit. She in was Detroit. born in Buffalo, grew up in Detroit, and then went and to school I, here at U of M. Right. And then taught at Wayne. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And now, now y'all yeah. are in Brooklyn. Yep. 
Now, you mentioned as you were talking about 1956 in San Francisco that that was a very, it was a very exciting, important time to be mm-hmm. in San Francisco for poetry and many other things. And you said it didn't quite seem like it was that exciting and important at the time. Do you think that there's comparable stuff going on now that uh, 40 years from now people will look back and say, well, I didn't know it was so exciting, but, but it oh, was. Oh, I'm sure there must be. I'm sure there Where must be. Where is it? Where is it well, happening? Well, you, you may not know yet. And, of course, it never happens the way the way it looks 40 years in the future. I mean, every time you walked into an art gallery in New York in, you know, in the 50s, you didn't find John Ashbery, Kenneth Koch, Frank O'Hara, and Jimmy Schuyler all sitting together being the New York school, you know. And in North Beach, even though people like uh, Ginsburg and Snyder and Lamantia and Ferlinghetti was omnipresent and Michael uh, and uh, uh, Whalen and uh, so forth, you know, but they weren't always on the street every day, you know, reading poems on a corner. Uh, they were around. They were part of the neighborhood. They weren't necessarily uh, the people in North Beach who were most prominent or really gave the the, the the uh, stamp of personality to the neighborhood, you know. Those were often just the people who hung out in the bars and uh, were and just the theater. there. <laughs> yeah, and the theater, yeah. Theater was, get rid of hangovers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A nice dark place to yeah. sit in an afternoon. <laughs> right, nothing like a good triple feature and a quart of ice cream to get rid of a hangover. <laughs> uh. Do you, as a publisher and editor, as well as a poet, and as a longtime resident of New York um, and important connections to San Francisco, do you feel as if you are part of or creating a scene now, or, or are you just sort of doing your, doing your thing and then we'll think, say that was the scene? I think I'm very much part of a community, and that, that community is, is very important to me as the years have gone by. Uh, Donna and I were at the poetry collection at the University of Buffalo a few weeks ago to see Mike Bozinski, the curator, about some things. And he, he took us into not only the, the collection that has something like 100,000 poetry books, all first editions and f- complete runs of magazines. And that's all wonderful. But then he took us into the vault and uh, we, we held James Joyce's walking stick. We were looking, holding pages from the manuscript of Ulysses and Charles Dickens' letters and Charlotte Bronte's notebook and stuff. You know, it's really amazing. All presented fairly casually, although it's not, that's an illusion. And then at one point, they have the complete run of a, an important California magazine called Kayak there, where Donna used to publish a lot. And he went to their files and and there, with one piece of paper in each file, he showed her manuscript poems of her own letters that she had written to George Hitchcock the, the 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 editor and so forth and when we left we just felt great you know we just felt like we really are part of this this very special world where we have some standing you know and you don't always feel that way when you know you're you're my age and people say oh do you write poems you know oh have you published that's always the the weird the first question have you you published yeah you know i say like look if you met a dentist in his late 60s would you ask him if he'd ever fill the tooth you know (laughs) um so what do you tell people do you answer them straight (laughs) it depends on who's asking you know but that's very important you know like being being here i've 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 had uh, a very good time uh, 
the last couple of days here. And, and, and part of it is also uh, being with Ken Michalowski, who I've known for decades, and, uh, and Keith Taylor, uh, who I've known for a long time and published two books by. And, and I consider very much part of my community, even if we go for years without seeing each other. You know, and that, that, yeah, that, that's important. And there is, there is, you know, that sort of adds up to a scene. You know, in New York, uh, our poetry world sort of revolves around the poetry project at St. Mark's. You know, a lot of the poets I publish and whose work I love and friends and so forth have, have associations with, with the poetry project. Now, the poetry project, you're the executive director of the poetry project. No, no. I got that. <clears throat> The print yeah, center. You, yeah, the print center is a place that, that prints books and okay. things. The Poetry Project is uh, basically they have workshops and they present readings. That's their. And uh, this is St. Mark's Place in Manhattan or, or uh, Brooklyn? In Manhattan. Right, down in, Manhattan. in the village. Right. Okay. Right. It's in St. Mark's Church is one of the oldest churches on the East Coast, and Peter Stuyvesant is buried in its churchyard. And, mm. and uh, since the early 70s, it's it's when Joel Oppenheimer Joel Oppenheimer was the first uh, director. It's been it's been a very important place for poets on our side of the line. Yeah. On your side of the line, which line would that? Well, be? I don't think many new formalists have ever read at the Poetry Project. <laughs> you know, it's the who who. Oh, you know, it's. <clears throat> It's all the poets, you know, get lumped together as uh, the beats in the New York school and the Black Mountain poets and, and so forth. You know, the, they tend to be the poets who are not writing formal verse, who are not immersed in the academic community, although a lot of them teach, uh, and so forth. You know, the, the, the wild men and women of American poetry. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I've never yeah. thought about the wild men and women of American poetry, but that's, yeah, a, that's all, a lovely all, image. All wearing buffalo skins and carrying <laughs> clubs. Here they come. Yeah. <laughs> Riding on I never thought of it either. But it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is a particularly funny image to mm. think about in thinking about Manhattan, which is this <clears throat> sort of concrete place. It doesn't when, feel like the open prairie. <laughs> Donna was very much a part of the Cass Carter crowd in Detroit back in back in the early 70s, which was one of those times that come along, like, like North Beach in the 50s, where a bunch of talented painters and poets were all in the same place at the same time and collaborating and sort of getting hits off each other and doing shows and readings and, and so forth, an exciting time. And, uh, and when she moved to New York in 1979... She was almost overcome by the variety of poetry. She thought she was moving to Wonderland where all these great poets were around the poetry project. It hadn't occurred to her that New York has just as many rotten poets and mediocre poets and dumb poets as any other city, only just in proportion a great many more of them. It really threw her for a while. She said, oh, my God, you know. That this is a polluted world. I don't want to be part of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the top of the hour, so we're going to take another quick break. This is WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3. You're tuned into the Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is poet Robert Hershon. We'll be right back. Come on to my house, my house. I'm going to give you candy. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you eggs and dates and grapes and cakes. Uh, come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, my house, come on. 
Come on to my house and my house, I'm gonna give you all of my wage and a bird in the cage. Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, my house. We're back. You're tuned into the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My guest today is the poet Robert Hershon. We're talking about his work, and um, he's been reading from his most recent book, Calls from the Outside World. Well, I wonder if you would start off that. And that last track we just heard was Rosemary Clooney singing Come On to My House, which was featured in the last poem that you read. And I wonder if you'd read one more poem for us. Um, this one is the title poem from your new book. Yeah. Calls from the Outside World, which actually came out this year, by the way. Keith got it wrong, and now it's part of the history that it was published in 2005. Uh, Celeste called work to leave a message for Nathan. Tell him Celeste called. Tell him something happened. And that became a famous phone message and part of the folklore, finally working its way into a byword at the shop, and it came to designate a call from anyone's spouse or companion. Hey, Richie, line six, something. And there was an amused pride in having having invented such a good piece of workplace slang, so specialized and so secret and so site-specific. But before long, Nate was gone, and then one by one, nearly everybody else. So today, the slang is just as good as ever, but completely forgotten or unknown to the present staff. So we see that for slang to survive, we require a body of speakers initiated in its use, large enough to provide continuity and with a core of permanence. That must be why the linguists invented prisons as language laboratories so that the whole country can imitate the speech of young black men but never actually have to see them. So white golfers can cry, you the man, and little blonde girls can shout, you go, girl. Thank you very much. That particular poem is a wonderful example of the of what you were speaking about in the very first part of the show when you said, "Well, I hope they kind of laugh and then go, oh, wait a minute.' <laughs> that's 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 a good example of the kind of poem where I'm like, oh yeah, wait a minute.' <laughs> it's it's also you know we were talking about when do you know when a poem is finished and how far do you push it? Uh, originally, the you know the beginning the anecdote about. Uh, you know, this famous phone message and so forth was real at, at the print center. Uh, uh, Nate worked for the print center and, uh, and we always just say, uh, something on line three and, and, uh, and the poem ended sort of a, what is now about the middle. And I began to think of some of the, some of the implications of that and, and some other things began feeding in, you know, um, and, uh, uh, like Donna used to teach at a very rich private school where all the, all the, all the little girls thought that they had invented yes. No idea that this is, you know, that, uh, Marv Albert, the basketball announcer had been saying that for 30 years, you know, but they, and so, so the, all that kind of came into it, you know, and, and it got pushed a little further and I think became a better poem for it, yeah. The case of where you go back in and it zigs left when it yeah, was headed exactly. headed one way, yeah. which is sort of a hard thing to to to, to, to teach um, how to know that how to get that instinct. Did you have to develop that instinct in yourself? Sure, or? I think it comes with experience and with writing a lot. And as uh, as a writing teacher, you know, the only way to learn to write is to write. 
And then when I worked for, for poets in the schools that go around, there was always one petrified kid with the hand, you know, the hand turning white around his pen and nothing on the paper and saying, you know, you can't, can't make a statue without stone. You've got to get something on the paper. And I'd say, like, what's your name? He'd say, James. I'd say, write it down, James, you know. Uh, what's today? Thursday. Thursday. Okay, write it down. Thursday. Look, look. Now you got words on the paper. You know, you're sort of the master of this paper now. Write down what you see. Look around the room, you know. Uh, who's that? That's Sally. Uh, Sally has red hair. Write it down. You know, let's see what happens. And uh, that's the process. And then I think experience tells you, is this worth saving? Is this worth, uh, is this a false start? And uh, frequently in later years, sometimes... I thought, am I kidding myself when I do this? Because you, you write a poem and it'll be virtually finished, and you say, I've done this before. In, in essence, I mean, the words are different, but really I've written this poem before. The poem, there's no thrill of discovery in writing this poem. There's no, oh boy, in writing this poem. It's, it's stillborn. I don't, I, you know, I don't want to play with it anymore. I don't want to publish it. I don't want to see it again. So do you and just I, shove it? Yeah, well, you know, writers are thrifty. I throw it in a drawer. I never throw it in a waste paper basket. <laughs> but uh, uh, but I, I used to think, oh, that's just an excuse not to write. You know, you're just using that. It's too convenient. And then I thought, no, it really is true. You know, uh, you don't want to keep writing the same poem over again. It's like reading the same mystery book over and over again. If you know how it ends, you know, who cares? Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I wonder, you wear not only the hat of poet, but the hat of publisher and editor. Do they compete? Yeah. I didn't used to think so, but but they do. They they draw on some of the same energy, just as for me. I mean, so many poets teach, and I, during my brief teaching career, I never did anything that competed as much with, with writing as teaching. I found teaching just exhausting. I just I felt like I was tearing out my guts every every hour and uh, never knew what I was going to do next. And I didn't have a 20 years of experience to fall back on and so forth. And um, the the demands of, of, of running a small press are, are constant. So frequently you find yourself going to your desk thinking, I'll work on something you're writing. And... Uh, and uh, an hour later, you realize you've answered three notes, and you've checked your email, and you've packaged up some books, and, you know, you you build a bookstore and so forth, and you get up, and uh, you feel sort of virtuous because you've done all these things, and you've made mail. I still sort of judge, am I a good person? Yes, I have two inches of mail here. Uh, <laughs> and you haven't worked on the poem, you know. Uh so yeah, they are they are competitive. I mean, they're not fatally competitive, I don't think. But uh, I've known a lot of a lot of people whose own writing has disappeared uh, after years of, uh, of 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 being publishers. And some some people say I don't miss it. You know, uh, I get the same pleasures from publishing other people's work. Uh, I never felt that way when I've gone through long fallow periods, which everybody does from time to time, I've, I've sort of been angry about it, you know, sort of like, why am I spending all this time do, doing his book when I should be working on my stuff? You know, why isn't the world at my door saying, Bob, write poems, for God's sake, man? Yeah. Does, do you then get at your door and say, Bob, write poems? I mean, how, how do you get back on track? 
I don't know. It's a very mysterious business. I used to be a lot more inclined to just start scribbling the way I told little kids to do and just see where it leads. It just kind of keep writing and writing until something seems to start leading somewhere. I don't do that as often anymore. Part of it's time and age. I don't know. You know, sometimes it's easier to just slump down and watch a Mets game. Um, <laughs> But I, but even when it's been a long time, I've been doing it long enough so that uh, I'm confident that it's not going to go away forever. And I know that one day the urge to to write something, I'll see something, I'll hear something, a word will suddenly see magic, something, and it'll come back again. And I don't feel at this point that I have any any quotas I have to fill. I don't feel, God, if I don't write 30 poems this year, I'm a bad person. You know, if I write six poems or I write 50 poems, whatever, they're, you know, as long as I'm happy with what I'm writing. And, uh, and, and finally, that's the only judge. It's nice when other people love the poems. That's great. You know, but finally, finally, you've got to like your own work and you've got to believe in your own work. And even in the days when I first started, when I sent out enormous amounts of poetry and got enormous numbers of printed rejection slips, it never occurred to me to stop. Never occurred to me once. And I don't think it does with most writers, even terrible writers. Just think, gee, maybe this is no good. Maybe I ought to go be an accountant or something, you know. Because uh, you just knew you were a poet. This was what yeah, you... Yeah, you just knew, like, oh, boy, I'll look at it again. No, this is terrific. You know, the world, the world should yet. love this poem. <laughs> yeah. That still continues. I have some poems in this book that, that nobody seemed to want to do in magazines. And since the book has come out, I've gotten, like, oh, you know, the poem I really love. And it's, yeah, yeah. Do you think that has to do with the way poems are arranged in a book and now they're in conversation with each other in a way that highlights it specifically or is it just... That's always, that's always a hope. You know, you work very hard to get the poems in the right order and, and so forth. I don't know that anybody actually reads a book of poems that way. I like to pretend they do, but uh, when I pick up a book of poems, I just start reading somewhere in the middle or I look to see what the first poem and the last poems are, which are usually, you know, feature spots where a poet puts... The, the best stuff. Um, and uh, But hopefully, I mean, when I put this book together, I, I sort of did it that way. I was hoping one poem would sort of lead to another, and, uh, you know, and I think it works pretty well. Yeah. You mentioned earlier in the interview that um, you're part of the, the bad boys and girls of poetry. You're sort of outside oh. the academy to, to a certain extent, and... Um, mm-hmm. You have done some teaching, and you're certainly um, very much a part of the poetry uh, world, but maybe not the new formalist sort. Do you get your inspiration from the the specific community that you're in in poetry or from the world itself? And do you think that differs from people who are working within the academy more strictly? I think we have different heroes and different standards and, you know, the... I mean, the, my heroes are people like uh, Robert Creeley and Frank O'Hara and and uh, poets uh, who uh, who I've, I feel I've learned a lot from and poets whose work is important to me and whose work I enjoy. And uh, uh, it was the thrill of my life the first time I met Creeley. He was my first poetry hero. And when I met him, I was reading with him in Rochester, New York, you know, 
And I was it's a just, great introduction. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know. And I was just like open mouth. And then, you know, to, to hear a poet reading his work when you know the work and you've never heard the voice is, is a revelation. It you truly know. was wonderful to hear him read his work yeah. as well, yeah. And he used to be an infamously bad reader, you know. People used to say, oh, God, here, you know. But you'd hear things, and he got much better in his last years. But, but also, you'd hear things, you'd hear the way they sound to Bob Creeley. And that, that's invaluable, you know. Well, yeah. we're going to have to wrap up the show today. It's been yeah. a real pleasure to hear you read your work and to talk with you about it. And um, I was reading it this morning to my students and then to hear you read the same poems. Um, it, it's wonderful to hear the writer read his work. So well, thank, thank you, you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. My guest today has been poet Robert Hershon. My name is Ashley David. You've been tuned into the Living Writers Show. I'd like to thank our engineer, Chaz Barrett, for doing such a great job. And please stay tuned. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. The Sports Report is next. Sports report. There to pick it up. Now here to Geis. Geis makes a move. Shoot and scores. Milan Geis with a sick move in the slot and beats Jordan Sigalat. I don't know how many moves he pulled off there, but Milan Geis scores and we are tied at three goals apiece. All right, good evening, Ann Arbor. Thank you for tuning in to the final Wednesday version of the Daily Sports Report, a two-man studio again today. I'm Steve Lake, joined today by Ted Pickus. It should be uh, quite a collaboration, as I guess I'll talk about a sport, then Pickus will talk about a sport, but we will never talk about the same the sport. Same sport. <laughs> but uh, we'll start, we'll start about, off with one that uh, Pickus could talk about a little bit, uh, softball, actually. Nice. Some softball news, which is nice for a Wednesday as a quartet of Lady Wolverines were invited to USA softball selection camps. This is the only Michigan news right now as everyone's starting to leave 
Uh, Jenny Ritter and volunteer assistant coach Jessica Merchant invited to the USA Softball Women's National Team Selection Camp, while Samantha Finley and Tiffany Haas were invited to the World University Games Selection Camp. Uh, I don't know what either of these teams really do. All I know is that apparently Carol Hutchins coaches the World University Games team, so that probably will uh, 